the dinosaurs are kind of the superstars of um, of the prehistoric world. But we had incredible creatures in Ireland during the Ice Age. I mean, woolly mammoths were amazing in and of themselves. They would have been just magnificent beasts to have seen in the flesh. Today, I'm talking to Connor O'Brien, an Irish wildlife writer and photographer. Connor's first book, Island Through Birds, was nominated for the Best Irish Published Book of the Year at the 2019 Unpassed Book Awards. His fabulous new book, Life in Ireland, A Short History of a Long Time, is just out in print and highly recommended for a dive through the fossil evidence into the prehistory of Ireland with a cast of weird and wonderful beasts from bygone days. Huge marine lizards, giant deer, woolly mammoths, armored dinosaurs, enormous conical shellfish, and one of the first animals to step out of the ocean, leaving a line of 365 million year old footprints on Valencia Island. It's a fascinating read and a very important topic, putting Ireland's current wildlife into the context of a contracted timeline. Connor also talks about bringing extinct species back to life and the hope that many people have to rewild Ireland. So hi Connor, thank you so much for being on the Nature Magic podcast. No problem, Mary, great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. So Connor has written um, a new book just published, Life in Ireland, A Short History of a Long Time. And I'll ask you really to tell us what it's about, but I have been gripped from start to finish. Uh, it's really the evolution of natural history in Ireland. Uh, is that yeah. how you say it in a nutshell? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summation of what it's about. Basically, uh, I wanted to kind of take a look at uh, the prehistoric life that we've had in Ireland. It's a topic that's always been of interest to me uh, since I was a little boy, always been interested in things like dinosaurs, mammoths, uh, just all the different prehistoric creatures that have existed around the world. So I really wanted to try and explore that within an Irish context and see what we had here and what we still have. So it's been a, a lifelong kind of labour of love and great to finally get it on paper. Yeah, I mean, my one of my favourite bits uh, is the Valencia Island trackway with the tetrapod. Do you want to tell us about that bit? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I went to Valencia Island for the first time um, there about two years ago, I think. And it was an it was absolutely incredible. It's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And the fact that it has this amazing landmark there makes it even more special. So um, the tetrapod trackway on Valencia Island, it's a sequence of about 200 footprints uh, that have been left, that were left in the mud about 385 million years ago by a very, very primitive tetrapod. So just to explain briefly what a tetrapod is, I suppose, uh, you and I are tetrapods, uh, so human beings are tetrapods, uh, mammals, all mammals, birds, reptiles and amphibians, basically any uh, backboned animal with four limbs or anything that evolved from one, like a snake or a whale, are all tetrapods. Um, so the Valencia Island tetrapod was at a time when they were first starting to gravitate kind of out of the water. So they evolved from creatures like fish from, well, they evolved from fish and then eventually kind of moved onto the land. So this was really a landmark moment in the history of life on earth, as you can imagine, so, you know, the ants. So these would have been the ancestors of uh, amphibians first and then reptiles, mammals and birds. This would have been the first time that they started to make incursions onto land. And by some real geological miracle, uh, the, one of the traces of that, the Valencia Island footprints, have managed to survive for 385 million years, cast in stone, and were only recently discovered in 1993. 
and when they were first found, they were actually the oldest tetrapod fossil, fossils, fossil footprints known in the whole of the fossil record anywhere in the world, right up until 2009, when a slightly older one was found in Poland. Uh, Ireland had the claim of having the oldest tetrapod tracks in the whole world, much older than the dinosaurs. When people think of prehistory, dinosaurs are probably the first creatures to come to mind. Not surprisingly, really, because you know, they were obviously ancient in their own way, but these footprints were much, much older than even the very first dinosaur by over 100 million years, well over 100 million years before the first dinosaur walked the earth. So that really puts in context how incredibly old they are. And just an amazing glimpse into prehistoric life because they were left by an actual living creature as opposed to bones, as important as bones are to paleontology. Bones are the remains of an animal that has died. Footprints are what were left by an animal in life. So... Just an incredible, uh, an incredible fossil find, not just in an Irish context, but for the whole world. Yeah. And in the book, you really feel like you're going through the history of evolution in Ireland and you really feel like you're, you know, stepping out of the ocean for the first time with these footprints and Valencia Island. So mm. it's very, very engaging. And there's been some other very exciting finds in Ireland as well. What are your favourite ones? Oh, good question. I mean, I suppose I've I've always had an I suppose it's a cliche to say, but I've always had an interest in dinosaurs, and it was I was it was really interesting reading about the um, the dinosaurs that have been discovered in Ireland, and you know, obviously doing research about that. So, um, unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of uh, of rocks from that particular time period from what's called the Mesozoic era, which is known to the popular imagination as the age of the dinosaurs. Uh, there's only really exposed a thin sliver of rock along the Antrim coast, but some very, very interesting fossils have been found there, uh, two of which are dinosaur bones, which were found in 1980 and 1981, both found by the same gentleman, actually, on the same stretch of beach on Island McGee in County Antrim. One would have been left by a four-legged uh, plant-eating dinosaur, an armoured dinosaur, that would have had bony scoots running along its back to keep it safe from predators, and the other bone, dinosaur bone, would have been left by a predatory dinosaur, kind of classic two-legged, very fierce, meat-eating dinosaur of the kind of popular imagination. Maybe not quite as big as something like T-Rex, but still would have been a fearsome predator in its own right. And then equally interesting, probably even more so, were the incredible marine reptiles that lived uh, during the age of the dinosaurs. And These weren't dinosaurs themselves. They were completely different, but they were equally fascinating. And a lot more of their remains are actually known from Ireland then of dinosaurs. So we had things like ichthyosaurs, for example, Ichthyosaurs would have looked a lot like uh, modern dolphins. They would have had a dorsal fin. They would have had flippers and they would have had a, a tail fin as well. They, it was just an interesting example of convergent evolution. So unrelated creatures kind of evolving to look alike on account of living a similar lifestyle. We also had plesiosaurs in Ireland. So the plesiosaur, kind of the classic Loch Ness monster uh, profile, I suppose, with the long neck, four flippers, a small head. And um, it, it while the Loch Ness Monster is dubious at best, I would say, uh, plesiosaurs were certainly living creatures and they're very well documented from uh, rocks in County Antrim. And we even had mosasaurs as well. Uh, so the mosasaurs were kind of the last of the, there were sort of three great lineages of marine reptiles that lived during the Mesozoic. And the mosasaurs were probably the last to come to the oceans, but arguably the most fearsome of all. Uh, I've kind of been brought to a public imagination very more recently with the Jurassic World movies even in a slightly exaggerated form, I suppose, but they would have been very fearsome in their own right. They would have been, they were very similar to modern monitor lizards, but obviously with a kind of, with a tail and with uh, limbs that were more designed for moving through the water, uh, very, loads of sharp teeth in their jaws, a very powerful bite. 
So a really incredible predator. And all of these creatures were swimming above the oceans where Antrim now stands millions and millions of years ago, which is just incredible to think. So can you tell us uh, how you became interested in this subject? You have to take a deep dive into my childhood, really. Um, I've been interested in prehistoric life, really, since watching shows like Walking with Dinosaurs and Walking with Beasts as a child. And then subsequently reading about all the different uh, eras of prehistory and the different uh, cast of characters that they contained. And uh, I was in my grandparents' garden and my parents' garden. And uh, not without finding any fossils, unfortunately, but uh, leaving a lot of uh, holes and flower beds behind me. But um, that's what really, that kind of got me into thinking, well, you know, if I haven't been so, so successful in finding fossils, maybe other people have. So I started reading about the kind of fossils that have been found in Ireland over the years, of which there have been many. You know, you see like giant Irish deer fossils have been found in the Dublin mountains. Uh, remains of woolly mammoths have been found in places like County Cork. Um, and then obviously the, the dinosaur remains, as I mentioned previously, in County Antrim. So uh, quite a lot of, of different prehistoric uh, remains have been unearthed, even in a small country like Ireland. So um, from that, I thought it would be just interesting to try and construct a narrative telling the story of Ireland as related in the fossil evidence that we have found and just trying to explore, you know, what the country was like for before people and, you know, the creatures that lived here. And uh, that's what I tried to bring to fruition with this book. Yeah, it's fascinating. And in the epilogue, you talk about bringing um, Ireland back from the brink and the rewilding of Ireland. Um, mm -hmm. So do you want to speak a tiny bit about that, what you would like to see happening? Well, yes, I mean, well, I mean, but there's no denying that we've we've lost a lot of what we once had. Um, like Ireland, as it's well known, used to be one of the most forested countries in the whole of Europe. Um, sadly, that's not the case anymore. We're one of the least forested countries in Europe now, as, as a lot of people know. Um, a lot of our farmland birds are in serious decline. Uh, I'm very lucky where I'm living in rural County Mead at the moment to have a healthy population of yellow hammers and tree sparrows around me. But uh, they're quite a rare sight across much of the country now. Corncrakes, of course, are um, have been almost obliterated. And uh, we've lost a lot of species in the process. We've lost um, things like a lot of our birds of prey were hunted to extinction. But um, what's really commendable to see, I mean, in the last few years is there have been wonderful reintroduction projects for things like the red kites in County Wicklow and the white-tailed eagles in County Kerry. Of course, before that, the golden eagle in uh, Donegal. Um, We've seen species that were extinct or certainly on the verge of extinction in Ireland have slowly bounced back. So buzzards are a much more common sight than they used to be. Great spotted woodpeckers are breeding again, which is amazing. Um, so, I mean, in terms of what it would be wonderful to see is just kind of, and it is happening. So it's just a much more of a concerted effort um, to save nature and to preserve the nature that we have in Ireland. Uh, much more of an awareness about the importance of it, which I do think has very much permeated to the general population. And it's amazing to see so many people trying to do their part and take responsibility for uh, maintaining the environment. Like um, there's just this explosion of interest in planting uh, wildflowers, for instance, uh, creating bee-friendly habitats. And um, of course, things like that are the foundations of a solid ecosystem. You know, you see a lot more people um, putting ponds in their back gardens, which, of course, are wonderful little oases for wildlife. So just through kind of a combination of efforts like these, you know, planting native trees, attempts to preserve boglands, hopefully we, I, well, I don't think we'll go back to the wilderness that we once had, like 
the country is just too small. There are too many people living here now. We can try and preserve the nature that we still have and enrich it where possible. And uh, that process is just underway and it's it's wonderful to see. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Um, I've seen buzzards here in Kinvara County, Galway, and we never saw them before. So mm-hmm. that was very interesting. And I think one of the problems is the shifting baseline, they call it. So people don't remember what it looked like 50 years ago. Driving no. from Kinvara to Doolan, the meadows were mm-hmm. full of colour. And yeah, yeah. even at the moment, there's a Facebook conversation going on with our local councillor. Um, he put up a post saying, oh, disgraceful, look at this, we need to mow the verges. Mm-hmm. Um, but people don't understand. And then obviously there was a lot of lashback on that saying, no, leave them for wildflowers. But people don't understand. The meadows are green now because of yeah. ke- chemicals and pesticides and silage practices and agricultural practices. So they're mm-hmm. used to that and they don't remember 50 years ago. And so you also talk about, which is very interesting, a new frontier bringing extinct species back to life. Is there anything in particular you'd like to see come back? (laughs) Well, I mean, one of it's 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 an interesting topic that has kind of surfaced in the last few years with developments in genetic technology, Uh, the the kind of sector of uh, recreating species that were extinct has has, you know, raised its head and um, it is a controversial topic for sure. I mean, there is people feel like there's an element of playing God about it. But um, when you when you read about it and you read about the kind of research that's undergoing, there is very interesting ecological bases for doing it. Like, um, for example, like you know, species that have become extinct as a result of human interference. That's a hole in an ecosystem which is now which needs to be filled again. Um, so, for example. It's widely believed that uh, restocking uh, Siberia with woolly mammoths will actually help in the fight against climate change because uh, mammoths were played a crucial role in helping to maintain the kind of steppe grassland and uh, thus kind of sequestering carbon within that, preventing it, you know, uh, kind of becoming boggy, basically just through their grazing and maintaining this this, uh, massive expanse of, of grassland. So, I mean... And, and of course, that would help a lot of other species that would also depend upon that habitat, both herbivores and, pre- and carnivores. So mm-hmm. there is definitely um, merit in it. Um, you know, species that were uh, completely eradicated by human activity, I think, you know, it's, it's probably incumbent upon humanity to try and bring them back if possible. Although that shouldn't come to the detriment of trying to preserve species that are here or neglecting uh, conservation efforts that are ongoing. You know to preserve wild populations that still do exist you know of endangered species like orangutans or uh, whatever the case may be so, so it's, it's a, con- it's a be- controversial controversial topic really mm-hmm. uh, how yeah. far along are they into creating a woolly mammoth well i think i believe a woolly mammoth genome has been fully sequenced at this point which means that scientists know what makes a mammoth a mammoth now uh, i was reading the other day that um the kind of hope is that through using Asian elephant DNA to kind of fill in the gaps, see woolly mammoths and Asian elephants are actually extremely closely related. The What's fascinating is the Asian elephant, that the ones that you see in Dublin Zoo are close, are more closely related to woolly mammoths than they are to the African elephants that wow. you see on the Serengeti. So that, should, which is amazing really, they share about 95% DNA, it's believed. So because of the incredibly well-preserved um, frozen mammoths that are found in places like Siberia. Scientists are, have been able to extract enough DNA so that they know what 
makes a, a woolly mammoth. It's now a question of how to actually uh, kind of fill in the, how can to actually fill in the gaps of the kind of of the of that are missing within the mammoth genome, and then how to use that information to try and create a mammoth. I think that is seems to be the 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 difficult part and the stumbling block. But the technology in her, that is involved in that is forever improving. So while it, it hasn't happened yet, and it might be quite a few years off happening, I think you'd probably be a brave person to say that it could never happen. Um, you know, the like um, extinct species have already been cloned, um, like the um, the uh, Iberian ibex is an example. But but basically, what I would say is that um, it, that is that you know, scientists' understanding of, you know, the, the kind of web of life and how species relate to each other is forever improving. And with that knowledge, it, it is hoped that, you know, the, that the recreation of extinct species will eventually become a reality. And I mean, if it does, who knows, we could be seeing things like passenger pigeons, we could be seeing mm. Tasmanian tigers, and we could even be seeing woolly mammoths. It's it's hard to know what the future holds, but um, it could be exciting yeah. times ahead. Hopefully. It's funny you mentioned the passenger pigeons because um, next week's episode is Dr. Joseph Bruchak, who's an Indigenous storyteller um, mm-hmm. and author. And mm-hmm. they still, the tribes still grieve the loss of the passenger pigeon every year. I can only which, imagine, yes. Mm. They, um, it, was a, it was a really catastrophic example um, of just uh, wanton slaughter. I mean, I think at one... I, 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 Speaking under correction, but they were surely one of the most numerous birds in the American mm. continent at one point. Um, yeah. the, 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 what you hear is flocks of them blocking out the sun. They were they were just that abundant. And yeah, just, and they were very very tame. They, they, they yeah yeah they were very tame. Yeah. They they sat on um, branches. You could walk up to them, and mm-hmm. the native people took what they needed and left the rest. Mm-hmm. And then obviously when Columbus arrived, they put them all in barrels and sent them off to Europe. Mm. and then they even rotted on the way so they didn't even get there yeah so that would be one species which it's not too scary to imagine bringing back the passenger pigeon whereas it is a little bit of a leap of faith to bring back a woolly mammoth however i would love to see them wandering about up in siberia but maybe some people wouldn't no it would i can think of few things i would i would want to see more (laughs) see more uh, it would be it would be incredible, but um, who knows? I mean, it could be could be many 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 years yet if it if it ever happens. Uh, what's your favourite plant or animal that's living today? In Ireland or abroad? Whichever, uh, anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world, it's a very very tough question. Possibly, I have a huge um, love of birds of prey raptors mm-hmm. and probably my favorite raptor would be the philippine eagle or the cellar sea eagle one of those two i think are just absolutely magnificent birds and i would love to see either of them in the wild um do you want to yeah, describe the, describe one of them for people describe one of them so the the philippine eagle um basically oh, how to even describe it it basically has like a, a kind of a headdress of uh, like a fan of feathers around its head and it has this enormous, heavy hooked beak, um, just just an uh, incredibly regal-looking creature. Um, very similar, some people might think, to the harpy eagle, which might be a little bit more familiar, but um, uh, not related, but very similar-looking. Again, convergent evolution, a, a monkey hunter, so an incredibly powerful animal. 
Um, critically endangered. Um, I think there are less than 300 players in the wild um, on account of things like habitat loss, loss of prey and so on. So, I mean, who knows, maybe they'll be a species in need of de-extinction um, before long. Hopefully that won't happen, but, um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're absolutely incredible. Um, Great. There are so many other creatures that I that I love. I mean, in an Irish context, uh, wheat ears are a bird that I'm very fond of. I just think they're stunning, and uh, I think you know the fact that they're they're my their incredible migration from Africa to to Ireland each year is just an, an, an unbelievable feat of endurance for such a small animal. No more than it is for things like swallows and swifts. But um, wheat ears are a special bird. I just I, I associate them with. Some of my favourite places in Ireland, just like remote places off the west, remote islands off the west coast, and um, also my hometown in Wicklow, where you'd see them on passage. Um, it's a nice sign that you know summer is on the way. Great. So, the, where are the wheat ears coming from? Uh, the wheat ears would come from tropical Africa, tro- southern, uh, southern or tropical Africa, and uh, they'd make their way up here to breed uh, in the uplands and bogs and some of the more remote parts of the west. And then on passage, so in spring and in autumn, you get them at coastal sites around the country. You'd see them in Dunleary, you'd see them obviously in Wicklow, Kilcool, all over the country, really. Not necessarily a hard bird to see. Um, it wouldn't be a, a super rarity, but mm. always a thrill. A very, very beautiful creature. Lovely. I'll put some um, images of the wheat ears and the Philippines eagles up on our Instagram when the episode launches. Um, so do you have any profound experience in nature that you'd like to tell us about? Oh, so many. Um, I've been very, very fortunate. I've got a chance to do quite a lot of traveling and um, I've got to see some amazing things in, in, my, in my time. Um, seeing a blue whale in the flesh was absolutely amazing. Wow. Where, was, where actually, was that? That was in the Azores. Uh, the Azores are this this small archipelago of islands in the middle of the Atlantic, um, part of Portugal, uh, basically ground zero for whale watching because of their location. Um, it's kind of on a deep continental shelf, which makes it perfect for sperm whales. And then you have uh, a variety of other whales that would pass through, blue whales being one of them. So my f- the first um, the first whale that I saw was a blue whale, and uh, that was just amazing. That was just immense. Oh, it was just absolutely incredible. So uh, what happened? Were you on a boat or were you on the I was on, I was on I was on a boat and um it's when you see when you hear like how big a blue whale is you, you think oh that's amazing but it's not until you actually see one that you kind of grasp the size of it like when I when it came up to when it came up to breathe and it's projected I think more than a meter out of the water and you think, oh my goodness, this thing is massive. And then you, when you remember, the vast majority of it is beneath the water. And it's more than four times the length of the boat that you're sitting in. And, you know, weighs upwards of 100 tons. It's just, it's just incredible just to think the absolute size of this thing, you know. And um, the fact that so little is, was known about them until very recently. I can, like, um, so cetaceans being whales and dolphins, they just fascinate me and, I was able to write about them briefly in, in life in Ireland, just kind of because um, we we are we're fortunate to have quite a good diversity of them here. I believe around a quarter of the world's total uh, species of whales and dolphins have either washed up in Ireland or have uh, are seen or have been recorded. Amazing. So um, yeah, so you know they're incredible just in terms of their intelligence, um, which again is something scientists are only really beginning to unravel. 
the, the degree of emotional sophistication that a lot of them have. So to cut a long story short, seeing a blue whale was amazing. Um, another, a very close, um, a very close second was would be in Kenya, uh, seeing elephants graze under Kilimanjaro. That was uh, that Beautiful. was something unreal. I've had, I must say, like some of the most profound wildlife experiences I've had in Ireland. Um, I've had in anywhere in the world, sorry, have been in Ireland. Um, like hearing a corncrake and seeing one for the first time is something I'll never forget. Um, it might not be as big or impressive an animal as a as a blue whale, but it's just such an important animal within kind of the context of Irish folklore. Having kind of grown up hearing how it's a species in such um, terminal decline and having travelled to, you know, what for me was this absolutely incredible um, island off the coast of County Donegal, Tory Island, and having to, you know, wait and wait and wait until this calling male finally emerged from a bed of nettles. Seeing that was just absolutely incredible. I can remember almost every sensation of it. And um, yeah, it was just, it was wonderful. And there is a spiritual element to it for sure. I mean, there's, it's just something so profound. And um, especially when you travel so far. And yeah, it just, it just meant so much to me. And hopefully it's something I'll never forget. Yeah, so every aspect of it burnt into your memory. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very good description. What's your favourite part of Life in Ireland, your new book? For me, probably the favourite part is talking about the Ice Age and just the incredible creatures that we had here. Um, just because I think it's kind of an underrated part of prehistory in a way. Like uh, the dinosaurs are kind of the superstars of, um, of the prehistoric world. But we had incredible creatures in Ireland during the Ice Age. I mean, woolly mammoths were amazing in and of themselves. They would have been just magnificent beasts to have seen in the flesh. And then, in, of course, in Ireland, we also had the giant Irish deer. Uh, as anyone who's visited the Natural History Museum in Dublin will attest, so you walk in the door, you see two magnificent stags and, uh, and a doe with them as well. These huge antlers that stretch more than three metres from tip to tip. And uh, they weren't unique to Ireland. They were found all across Eurasia. But uh, the Ireland is probably the most prolific site for the species in the whole of Europe. So... I mean, we just had amazing creatures. Just to think, for instance, that we had hyenas in County Cork. But like that fact alone, I think, just, yeah. just <laughs> blows people's minds. You know, it certainly blows mine. And um, yeah, it, and the fact that, you know, muskox in County Antrim, you know, uh, and reindeer in County Sligo. Just amazing to think of the, the, the beasts that we had, not to mention things like bears and, and wolves. So it would have been just an incredible fauna to have seen. And we now know actually that people did see it because um, uh, this is one of the amazing things about paleontology is that new discoveries are forever being being made. So just recently, uh, earlier this year, a reindeer bone was found in Castle Pook Cave in County Cork. Now, Castle Pook is one of the most prolific sites in Ireland for Ice Age bones. It's where spotted hyena have been found, woolly mammoths, giant Irish deer, reindeer, among other creatures. But this particular uh, reindeer bone had scratch marks that were left by human hunters and it was radiocarbon dated to 33,000 years ago, which that, which was an absolute bombshell because that pushed back the date for human arrival in Ireland from 12,500 years ago, which was the oldest date known at that time to 33,000 years ago. So completely rewrites the history of humanity on this island. So just an absolutely incredible discovery. And yeah, that was that was fantastic. I saw that in the new film about the Boren, mm-hmm. Boren, yeah. Boren Heart of Stone, uh, which yes, was that's right. 
uh, narrated by Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson, I think. Yeah. And I think it was Dr. Ruth Carden who dis- who made that particular Was discovery. it? And so yes, there was, there was so, a bit yeah. of footage of Dr. Ruth Carden in her office, mm-hmm. which is basically mm-hmm. there's bags and piles of bones. And she's been searching through the bones for years and years. And yeah. then she yeah. comes across from I know. all Incredible. the bones, a tiny little um, man-made knife mark or evidence yeah. that yeah mm-hmm. and that was the find mm-hmm. and you could just yeah. imagine her you know doing her research for years and years and years and all of a sudden oh, she's on I the can't even imagine yeah <laughs> she the, must the have feeling been so of, delighted oh it must have been it must have been just absolutely ab- absolutely immense just just complete euphoria yeah I can only I can only imagine <laughs> that's so cool mm-hmm. um yeah so you were talking about people putting in ponds in their garden. Is there anything you can suggest for people to try and support nature? Uh, the main thing I would recommend is, well, there are, lo- there are lots of things people can do. I mean, one of, one, thing, one of the main things I would recommend is, I mean, if you have a garden, put native plants in it or put at least one native plant in it. Uh, mm-hmm. We currently have, um, my fiancé and I, um, we're lucky enough to have lots of ivy in our garden we have a hawthorn tree and uh, we've got two rowan trees which are currently kind of taking root at the moment so hopefully they'll grow nice and big uh, have flowers which will be perfect for insects and then of course in the winter lots and lots of berries for for thrushes to fight over so that's one thing you can do um obviously if you're if you're a bit more dedicated to it you could try and build a, a wildflower patch or or a pond it does require a little bit more work but i mean you know you get you get out of it what you put into it for sure um in terms of other things people can do i mean uh, one of the things that i would just if if we could convince everyone to just pe- or not everyone sorry because it's certainly not everyone that does it but i mean if we could convince people to stop littering i think that would just help enormously in just in just you know cleaning up our natural spaces and you know it is huge detrimental to wildlife as well so I mean, if we could eliminate that and um, just, you know, cultivate a society where that is seen as completely unacceptable, and it's certainly moving in that direction, which is great. But if we could eliminate that entirely or as much as we could, as much as it could possibly be eliminated, then I think that would be a, would be a huge boost and it would make our, um, our wild spaces look, look all the better for it. But yeah. um, I mean, there, there's so many other things you can do. I mean, Leaving water out for birds in winter is a very simple thing in a bowl, you know, it, you don't even have to buy bird seeds, it's just water, you know, birds need water, obviously, as much if not more than they need food, they need it for maintenance of their feathers as well as for drinking, and of course in a bad winter when a lot of water is locked away under ice, it can be very hard for birds to access, so that's when they need it more than ever, so I mean just that alone can make a huge difference. Mm, that's a very, very simple tip. Um, just mm-hmm. a couple of things on that. So there was an idea by one of our politicians, I forget who, that the Supermax uh, packaging would have to have the phone number of the person that ordered the uh, <laughs> the meal so that if yeah. you found it in a ditch, or not the phone number, sorry, that the car reg would be taken from the mm-hmm. drive-throughs. So if you found, you know, that coffee cup or that packet in the ditch, that car reg would be on it, be traceable. So I thought that was an interesting idea. It's it's an interesting idea. It's the first I've heard of it. I mean, I, I I couldn't I wouldn't really want to pass comment on whether or not it would be 
a good idea. I'm sure people could poke holes in it. It's, yeah. it's the first, yeah, but I mean... It's, it was um, a suggestion anyway. It's a suggestion, yeah, absolutely. But, um, I, I do agree, it's just more awareness. But also mm. ivy, that you mentioned ivy. Ivy is given a bad rap. Um, people are always cutting ivy off trees. And yes, we yeah. have we have a hawthorn bush here, but we have many hawthorn bushes, but there's one that's completely enveloped in ivy. And it mm. is a habitat for I don't know how many birds and and yeah. and mm. other things. And insects, yeah. And I insects. Mean, I, and the, the hawthorn isn't suffering. People think that the ivy chokes the trees. And actually, yes. we, we've ash dieback across the burren. We have a lot of ash trees here. The mm. ones mm. that are covered in ivy are the ones that are doing best. So I'm not sure really? if the, yeah, the fungus, I see, now it's not a scientific proof, but from my um, observation. I can see the ones that are really the trunks covered in ivy haven't lost their foliage so much. I know mm -hmm. it's a fungus, maybe it does attack the bark. I'm not too sure, mm -hmm. but people should stop being so uh, panicking about ivy and chopping it down off their trees. Yes, I mean, um, you and you don't have to have you know every surface in your garden covered with ivy either. I mean, a small a small patch of it, like um, it can be it can be a wonderful a way to sort of integrate uh, features like a, a boiler tank or something like that into your garden in a more naturalistic way, like letting that become, uh, become kind yeah. of, yeah, letting that kind of overgrow with ivy. And that's like in my parents' uh, garden, for instance, their boilers covered in ivy and there are forever butterflies foraging in it and birds poking in and out of it. So um, it, it turns a feature, it can turn a feature that would otherwise be not particularly attractive, let's be honest about it, into something that can be a little haven for nature in and of itself. That's um, a very good idea. And also the flowers um, are important for bees. Very important, um, yeah. And the berries are very important for, for birds and thrush and uh, warblers and things like that. So, so yeah. if, if you had a magic wand, what would you do for the planet? Or have you already are you already getting rid of all the litter? Or have you anything <laughs> else you'd like to do today? Um, oh, there's, there's so much that... That you that could be changed. I mean, I like to think of myself as a a pragmatist. Um, I'm not a um, uh, I'm not a uh, one of these people. I, I wouldn't like to think I'm taken with utopian fantasies. But I mean, it would be wonderful to, like you said, eliminate litter, eliminate things like plastic from the sea, um, just kind of um, make sure that we have a network, the network of kind of wild spaces that we need to preserve to preserve the, the species that we have uh, in Ireland, in Europe, everywhere in the world, really. And uh, just to try and achieve a balance between humanity and nature uh, so that, you know, the two can live in harmony and uh, and find ways to, to coexist. I mean, just that that would be that would be kind of my my dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it's simple things like changes in the CAC payment, um, they're talking about rewilding Scotland, but I mean, Connemara is the same. If they stop paying the subsidies for the sheep, we'd, admit, we'd instantly have a forest. Let's pay the mm -hmm. farmers for a forest instead of sheep. Yeah. But anyway, that's, mm -hmm. another, that's another conversation. Um, today, obviously, I am recommending Life in Ireland, A Short History of a Long Time by Connor W. O'Brien, which I really recommend. It's, it's gripping, it's fascinating, and it's full of um, information about wildlife in Ireland. Have you any other nature book written by another author that you'd like to recommend? Um, oh, there are so many. Um, yeah, I'm, one of my favourite uh, living scientists is a guy called Franz de Waal. 
He's a, so that's F-R-A-N-S-D-E-W-A-A-L. He's a Dutch primatologist. And uh, so he's written quite extensively about uh, great ape kind of cognition, their behavior and how it, how it kind of mirrors our own behavior. Uh, he has a book called Our Inner Ape, which is absolutely brilliant. I'd recommend it to anyone. Um, so many, there's so many other books. Um, there's a book called uh, The Cultural Lives of Whales and Dolphins, which gives a wonderful insight into their behavior. I can't remember the name of the author of that book. That's okay. I'll find it. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. Yeah, it, that's it's a it's a it's a fascinating read. So I think it's fascinating thinking about the wildlife of Ireland in the context of history. This is really the book about that, and I've learned so much from the bottom feeding shark like fish I'm not sure if they were actually sharks yeah to the to the Valencia Island trackways so thank you so much Connor good luck with the book thank you so much Mary great to speak to you thank you for listening to Nature Magic our ratings are shooting up in various places around the world thanks to our wonderful guests helping to spread a positive voice for nature this week I was honoured to present a short video introducing five of our Burren plants for the Trinity Botany Department 5 in 5 series to promote botany to a wider audience. I'll post the link in the show notes. Some lovely footage of bee orchids, fly orchids, bloody cranesbill, burnet roses and mountain avens. Another wonderful initiative to help people have a greater appreciation of the biodiversity on our doorstep.